kua āta haere, muri tata kino. To start early is leisurely, but to race against time is desperate. Engai iwi o te motu, nau mai anō ki te whare nei a te ahi kā. He wahanga tēnei hei whakamōhio atu i ngā take Māori me ngā kaupapa Māori kia tātou. I runga i tēnei waka o te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Ko Justin Murray, ahau. Welcome to Te Ahika on Radio New Zealand National, where every week we hook you up with what's happening in the Māori world. Te ao Māori. I'm Justin Murray. The military media machine went into overdrive when Ngāpuhi Corporal Willie Apiata received a Victoria Cross in 2007. A year later, a book followed. Leanne Tamaki reviews Willie Apiata VC, The Reluctant Hero by Paul Little. We continue our support of New Zealand Music Month and review reggae band 1814 and their debut album Jar Rhythm. I'm with Mere Takoko, who joins the Tiahika team of reviewers for books and albums on the show. It's kind of the stable now of reggae. Like, there's lots of groups who are making that sort of sound, which is why I like 1814. Because while they bring that rural dimension of being sort of underground, they also bring a new sound. And that's, that's it. I mean, that's what I enjoy about this music, is the fact that they're not afraid to jump out of the norm and experiment with their own sound. I just want them to do more of it. Mere Takoko coming up soon. And Mariah Rakuraku reports from a Kauhoe Waka Club in Gisborne that spawned the likes of the famous Henerupe maidens and legions of Māori men. You know what, Gordon? You can tell um, people do ama. They're real buff. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, well, I don't know about that, but these yep. fellas here like taking their shit. <laughs> they like taking their shits off. Seemed not so long ago rugby players were doing the same. Mariah is at Horota Kaihue Waka Club in Turanganui Akiwa in Gisborne, asking whether wakaama is replacing rugby as the sport of choice for provincially based Māori. I'm Justin Murray and you're listening to Te Ahika. You're listening to Te Ahika, Radio National. Kotemia Tuatahi. Had a male done this review rather than Leanne Tamaki, the outcome may well have been different. Or would it have been? Well, now that's a name and a person we weren't familiar with until a couple of years ago, Leanne. And probably for me, not until a couple of months ago, right, if I'm honest. <laughs> Um, and yes, we all know what we're talking about, that photo of Willie that was taken by the French photographer in Afghanistan. So, yeah. He's walking down the road. I'm going to out myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And the photo is tied in with what's made him a household name. It is. So um, the book itself, though, was released two years ago um, in November. And then I guess with the photo coming out, all over the world um, a few months ago that's probably brought it back and brought Willie Apiata back into um, the media spotlight. Um, but let's talk about the book. And um, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. So the book, that's Willie Apiata, VC, The, the Reluctant, Reluctant Hero. Hero. With, and it's written with Paul Little. Who's a Juno. 
Um, and it is. It's written in that style, so it's mm. very, very accessible. Um, and probably the reason why I read it in like three days. And um, I have another book that I'm supposed to read that I've had for about <laughs> almost a year, and I'm only halfway through it. So this book is really, really, really easy to read, and it is a good Willie Apiata tells a surprisingly good yarn. The structure of the book is Willie Apiata's voice is mostly uh, put in, in, I guess, interview snippets. So he, when Willie Apiata's voice comes through, it's when he's talking about, he's, he's usually recounting stories of his life, like his, bits of his childhood, um, the experience of getting into the SAS talks about some of the missions that he's been on. I don't think that's the term that you use, but you know, so, so the, the time that he's spent in um, Timor in Afghanistan. So his voice comes in through that way and it's very much first person speak, whereas Paul Little kind of fills, fills in the, the context. So he gives you kind of factual information and you know, so stuff about the army or a little bit of history about the SAS, stuff that wouldn't be interesting coming from Willie Apiata. And even, I guess, bits where about Willie Apiata's family life. So just, you know, basic stuff like explaining his mum, that she's Pākehā, his father, that he's Ngāpuhi, just, just some quite basic information, but stuff that I, th- I think wouldn't be as interesting as the stories that are in there and Willie Apiata's voice. Now, if we um, just go back to what you said before about him being Napuhi, so what I what I remember about this whole thing, right? Because I was very disconnected from the whole ceremony when he was awarded the Victoria Cross, which is the highest medal that someone can achieve for gallantry in within a Commonwealth country. They were showing him um, being welcome back onto a marae and whanau apanui mm-hmm. so what that did right is I th- it made me think he was from mm-hmm. whanau apanui yeah. and then next minute he's been welcomed onto a marae up at Napuhi yeah. but he's actually not whanau apanui is he? No, apparently his whanau um, moved there when he was about 8 and he talks about how he, he and his mum and I think his dad um, That if I can just point out that that's kind of one of the things in the book it's not necessarily in any kind of chronological or ordered form so you know they talk about things oh we lived in up north and then we moved down to Whanaupanui and the dad's there and then the dad's sometimes not there so there's there's a few gaps in that way but it's not information you really need to worry about but anyway back to your question yes he is Ngāpuhi, and they grew up in um, Te Kaha. He, his, um, his mum, his three sisters, and himself. And where's he in the whānau? He is in the middle. Um, so, yeah, he's one boy with a whole bunch of women, <laughs> <laughs> which might, you know, speak to the way he, um, which might speak to the what the values that they're instilled in him that, um, kind of um, instigated his act of bravery. Who knows? Yeah, but his his father seems to have been on the scene as well in Te Kaha um, for a little while as well. But um, what, what's really interesting is 
he does talk about his mum being his hero, which I think is a really important point that he makes. Um, because at some stage, their father wasn't with the Fano as in yeah, he left. Yeah. So she was in she Te Kaha. She was in Te Kaha, a Pākehā woman. A Pākehā woman in a very, what would have been and still is, a predominantly Māori community, yeah. bringing up her four children. Yeah, her four children who were Māori. And he does say in his, um, in the book that it was partly that they were Māori that, you know, kind of gave her that um, anchor within the community. But it was also, Willie does, Willie does talk about how his mum was just very strong and um, was able to uh, bring them up in a community that may have, well, ostracised them, but they didn't. And it seems like Leanne, he hasn't done that thing that some Māori Pākehā children do where uh, they end up not identifying as Māori. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I, th- I think um, Willie does, t- he talks about how he, um, you know, he's he's very, um, I'm not sure how you would explain it, but he he doesn't speak Māori, but he knows how to pronounce Māori words, you know, and he um, is kind of au fait with customs and tikanga on marae. So I guess if you're brought up in a community like Te Kaha, it's pretty hard to get away from the fact that it's very te whānau apanui. And, and he um, identifies very strongly with being Māori. Yeah. Do you think that was aided by the um, by some of his childhood experiences and the families that he mixed with? Because, I mean, that's interesting. What actually really stood out for me was that there were always really good and quite outstanding mentors within Willie Apiata's life. So his mother... Um, in Te Kaha, he talks a lot about um, Reuben Parkinson Sr., who was almost his, well, basically his father figure, as well as his father. He never speaks ill of his father or ho- seems to hold any um, bad will against his father. He just, it seems quite matter-of-fact his father left. That's fine. He had to go and do something else. And Willie Apiata found Reuben Parkinson Senior as a, you know, pretty worthy role model and father figure. So Reuben Parkinson would take Willie Apiata and his own sons pig hunting, which you know a lot, a lot of people have talked about how pig hunting is pretty much a big thing in Willie Apiata's life, and it was that kind of bush uh, training that. Uh, is a part of what makes makes Willie Apiata a good soldier, I guess. Well, people always comment. There have been a lot of comments about that upbringing and his SAS training kind of working together to make him the type of soldier that he is. So I guess I'm guessing what you're talking about is when you're in the bush you and you're tracking a pig, for instance, and you can be up there for hours. Hours and hours, you have to be resourceful, rely on your own strength and ability to 
get out of where you've gone into because you know once you go in the bush it is very hard to become disorientated because everything looks the same you have to be strong you have to know your environment you have to be pretty smart um you have to have stamina because you have to carry that pig out (laughs) so you know um i guess that upbringing really did kind of get him ready for the life that he um eventually took up but um and that's for me that those are the stories that stand out as well as are as times with um Reuben Parkinson senior and his brothers um, so what 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 time period are we talking around here are we uh, talking around the 1980s 80s? yeah mid 80s so when he's uh when he the, they were eight when they moved to Tikaha so spent his whole life there um so that's about the time yeah when Reuben Parkinson's having, you know, um, Willie actually lives with them for a little while. Um, and there are some very funny stories about them going to the bush to go pig hunting. Um, so what's a funny story? Okay, so there's the story in the, in the, um, that Willie tells about going pig hunting. And um, they, they, they seem to have gotten the time wrong. When they go in, so they think they've gone in early in the morning. <laughs> I I don't know. Maybe they don't have clocks. <laughs> they so they get up, they get ready to go, and they're there in the bush, and they think, you know, it must be about oh, three o'clock in the morning. So it's you know thinking it's almost going to be daylight, but then they slowly realise that it's actually probably only about eleven o'clock at night. <laughs> and and the 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 co is there with them too. So Reuben Parkinson Senior is there with them. It's Willie Apiata and and I think so. I think so. And his and his um, Reuben's two sons. And so they realise that because well, before you go in the bush, you don't eat because you know that when you kill the pig, you have to eat all the insides. And he talks about this in the book. Um, so they haven't eaten. They haven't quite. Um, prepared themselves for how long they're going to be so they're not really dressed appropriately uh, or they haven't taken blankets because they're not going to sleep there or or really, really warm clothes. So they build a fire and it's quite cold and they decide, I don't know who suggested it. Now this is all happening when there's an adult around. Yeah, this eh? is all happening (laughs) under supervision, which is, I think, is hilarious. This is partly why I think it's even more hilarious. I think it's a test. (laughs) test. So they build a fire and they figure out that if they put um, greenery on it, um, they still get the warmth without the flames. And so somebody, nobody's uh, um, incriminated in the book, somebody suggests that maybe they sleep on the fire to keep warm. (laughs) So they sleep on the fire (laughs) to keep warm. It's, and it's these quite hard case stories, you know. And they, uh, he does talk about how um, that you know you'll fall asleep, and then sometimes you might wake up and um, your bum's burning. <laughs> so he, uh, that's what I mean when he tells a really good yarn. But I have to tell you about another one that had me in stitches because I could, as it was being described in the book, I could, I was seeing it happening. So he talks about the first time he he talks about his horse, his first horse that he ever owned, and how he had to work really, really hard to get the money to pay for it, and how um, he had to go to 
um, Te Waiti to pick it up, which is a little bit away from Te Kaha, isn't it? My geography is a bit off, but I think it's a little bit out of Te Kaha. So he and his sister had to go and get it, and they go on her horse because she'd worked to get her a horse. And so he'd done all this really, really hard work cutting gorse, I think, up the side of a hill. Which is very hard work. <sighs> very hard work. Um, and so, yeah, he gets his money, he goes to buy, goes to pick up his horse, and he loves his horse. His horse's name is Blaze. Mm. Um, and he tells the story about how his horse is was clumsy. And apparently Willie Apiata is clumsy. He talks about how he himself and his horse are clumsy. Um, and the horse gets uh, tangled up in some blackberry. And so Willie describes how... Um, and when you're tangled in blackberry, it's a bit like getting tangled in um, barbed wire. Yeah, because you can't get out of it because no. it sticks to you and it's yeah. sore. So you're in pain and you're stuck. So you're trying to get out. And so the, the horse's legs are tangled. And so he flips, Willie Peta flips off the horse onto his back. And then he describes how all he sees is the horse's butt <laughs> coming towards him and it lands on his face. <laughs> So there's just really, really those are what those are the stories that stand out for me, and they stand out for me more than the actual stories about the SAS um, training and um, the actual stories about being in Afghanistan and stuff like that. These, yeah, those are the really, really funny stories. And it's funny I talked to my dad about it because he'd read it as well, and he said what he found interesting was the tone. That um, Willie talks in. He's for my dad. He says that is a very East Coast way of speaking, which I'm not familiar with. with. So for my dad, he really sees the East Coastness in it, um, and in the stories that Willie tells and in the way he speaks. So um, yeah, it's a great read. And um, but let's talk about. I mean, he has come to. Uh, you know he's very much embedded within the New Zealand psyche now Mm -hmm. and that's because of his actions while he was in the SAS that resulted in in him being awarded the Victoria Cross so what is it that he actually did? He now this is from memory and and as I said I will will put a disclaimer out there it wasn't the most interesting bit of the book for me but um and and that's not to say that his act of bravery wasn't amazing. yeah amazing it just I, I think it's superseded by some of the other stuff in the book <laughs> like your horse falling on top of you falling um, on your face yeah falling on your face um but Willie Apiata was in Afghanistan and well they're a bit cagey about some of the details, which is, you know, that's fine. It's understandable. And um, actually the whole book is uh, has that kind of feeling. So his, his mother and father aren't named, which is, that's great yeah. because I think with the amount of publicity that he already has, that kind of intrusion into, you know, what little he might have private um, is best well kept that way. So um, people aren't named uh, with their full names, uh, fo- the photos in the book. There's quite a few. A lot of the faces are blurred, um, which you know that's fine. That's part and parcel of being in the SAS. But 
so on the the reason he got his VC was because he basically saved his comrade from death by um, their car was uh, they were in a village that was said to have probably been um, not as friendly as they thought it was um, doing their soldier stuff <laughs> and um, they were under attack in the car that Willie Apiata and his two um, SAS comrades were in um, was fired upon and actually was blown up so his mate that was injured was bleeding profuse, profusely and actually really describes it. he describes it as um, it sounding like a tap was on and the water was pouring. Jesus. Yeah, so if you can imagine that sound, Ooh. but imagine it coming out of a person and that it was blood. Mm. That's what he heard. And so he um, assessed the situation and realised that their burning car, that was their only cover, wasn't going to be any use, any use um, very soon and that one of them was going to get hit if not all of them, very shortly. And so he needed to make a decision, and that decision was to try and move his friend or his colleague. And um, he does talk about how he and his mate do try to move him, but it was just very difficult. He was in so much pain. So he just picks him up, runs 70 metres with him to the medics, under fire. He must have some pretty good kaitiaki, um, and he makes it gets his friend to safety and gets him to um, some medical help, makes sure his friend's okay, he shoots back into the fray. And that's what got him recommended for his VC and ultimately got him the VC. Well, I mean, he's still a a current member of the army, isn't he? Yeah, he's still a current, he's an active active, um, soldier, so he still gets to go out into active combat um as you as and well that's why as the that whole is that's why the whole world knows because he was photographed by that French photographer but I'd just really recommend it um especially I mean I don't think he wants to be a role model for you know young children he's just doing what he's doing and it just happened to be that he got a VC for doing his job and that actually that's what I should actually say is what comes out of this book is actually how um, normal he is. They don't try to build him up in the book to be this kind of infallible hero. He's actually, you know, because he talks about how he's clumsy when he tried out um, the f- second time. See, he had to try twice to get into the SAS because the first time he'd broken his arm. But like me with my driver's license. Yeah. <laughs> He had to broke his arm the first time, and he couldn't he couldn't get through the push ups. In the first, um, in his, when he first tried out for the SAS, and then the second time, there's this apparently this big long um, run. walk slash run, mostly walk or trot, that they have to do across. I think it's in Waiwudu. It's somewhere kind of barren and hard. Um, and he talks about how he. Um, was almost finished the the run and he forgets his gun. So he has to 
track himself back to go and find it. But he still makes um, the run in great time. Like, he has hours to spare when he's finished. So I guess that shows – it kind of shows – Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think – Is he a bit of a dodo? <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't call him a dodo. He's a soldier, you know. I, I think those kind of stories are there to show you that he's actually quite normal. But then that story also shows that he's not – as sure, well, it's a bit he tracked of, back. Yeah, he tracked himself back. And he was still hours early. He's still hours early. Does it feel like, you know, you've alluded alluded to it before about, you know, they don't give out, they give out enough information but not enough detail to for it to still kind of be a bit um, covert? I mean, does it feel like there's a spin going on here? I think he, if they were ever to pick anybody to be their pin-up boy, he's probably... They made a really great choice. So does it feel like a military spin, though? To... I can definitely see that there's a military edit going on. You know, they're giving you just enough to to kind of satiate that interest. But it's also, um, you, can, you can still see that it's still within their control. And I think the photo that was taken by the French photographer earlier this year probably... Um, meant they had gone to damage control again and try and, you know, because it, it kind of died down there for a bit and he was, you know, still um, recognised um, and, um, but he was able to be a soldier still and I, I don't think that photo being published did him any favours at all. Who do you think this book is targeted at? Um... For me, I, when I was reading it, I could really see how my nephews would benefit from reading it because you can see that they have exactly the same upbringing as Willyapiata. Very bush-savvy children, very um, resourceful, embedded in their rural communities. And you can see how it might actually be a little bit difficult for them to see where those skills could be of use mm. in a world that is increasing well and is increasingly urban, um, increasingly technology focused. Um, so I, I think for my nephews in particular, that's that's where I would target it at. But it's also just a really good story for anyone who might um have a cynical perspective on war. I am not a. I can honestly say that I'm not a person who subscribes to the belief that what we do, what the war on terror is a good thing. I don't subscribe to that. But this gives you this book gives you a soldier's perspective on that, um, and actually gives you a little bit of aroha for what they're going through. And their job, um, and so it, it it actually shows you that it's not a simple thing to um, have that view that all war is bad, that all all people who participate in war are bad. It's not an it's not a black and white um, area. It's grey, and it's something I think we need to always interrogate but also understand that there are real people 
uh, amongst amongst the uh, in the phrase that occur, and that it's not something that's um, it's not something that's just entirely political. I think we just have to remember that there are real people actually out there, and that's what that book did for me. It, it actually um, made war a little bit more real. Leanne Tamaki no ngai tūhoi me ngāti maniapoto with Marae Rakuraku reviewing Willy Apiata VC, The Reluctant Hero by Paul Little. Seems like she got a lot out of it, Neha. And uh, remember, if you'd like to listen to that again, head to our website, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash teahika, where you can click into all our past programs. And while there, you can navigate yourself around our page. You'll see our review segment, Te Wete Wete, where details of all our book reviews are. What's the connection between an Anglican missionary from the early 19th century and a group of contemporary reggae musicians? Stay tuned, you're about to find out here on Te Ahika. Christmas Day, 1814, is recognised as the date of New Zealand's first official Christian service that was officiated in Oihi, Rangihaua in the Bay of Islands, by Samuel Marsden which has provided the inspiration behind the name and whakaaro for reggae band 1814. Mere Takoko no Ngati reviews the album. Members include Patu Colbert, um, sons Sean and Jimmy Colbert, and they've, over the years they've had members join the group. Um, Darren Katene, Catherine Tehara Atama, Ruben Higa. Edna Jones and Maihi Pinka. Now with me, I have um, Mere Takoko, who is going to review the CD for us. Kia ora, Mere. Kia ora, <laughs> So, okay. um, 1814, Mere. Well, what did you like about it? So, morning <clears throat> stuff for me is my favourite. One of my favourites too. I love the way... I'm glad they chose that to kick off the album because it starts on a real high. So, if you're... Like me, for instance, when I came into the office, I was kind of feeling tired, had a late night, and then I put this... CD on and was like, wow, I feel so awake now. So I love that it started on a high. incorporated techno because I've never heard a lot of reggae sounds with that mixed music. So it just brings a new element and that's something that, that really stood out for me, that these guys although they're up in Narbush <laughs> in the middle of nowhere yep. um, you know, it's, a, it's an area of the country where reggae is really deep 
and the culture there and um, they've brought a totally new flavour. So for me it's about um, what stands out is the experimental nature of this of the tracks. I love the incorporation of the Indian music and, and of course Jamaican which is pretty traditional for reggae. Yep. And then um, I love the Te Reo Māori element that they've brought to it as well because that just gives them a bit of an edge. Yeah. Mary, oh, what do you think differentiates 1814 from House of Shem, from Black Seeds, from, um, you know, current reggae or dub reggae bands that we have in Aotearoa? Well, I know this is just their debut album, so I think they're still trying to find their sound, and they have. They just need to make more of it, and I think that sound and the, the unique point of difference that they have is the fusion of, of other cultures, because I think they could just do as well on, on, on the world music stage. And that genre, as much as they could on the New Zealand Kiwi reggae styles, but that's limiting their, their ability to um, get out in the marketplace. So I think if they focused more on blending you know, our unique traditional Kiwi reggae styles, Māori reggae styles, with um, you know, the techno funk and, and throwing in some Indian East Asian sound in there too, I mean, it would be really quite unique and, and fantastic. <laughs> Jarrahim is the, is the debut album, and you know there's something about I don't know if, if it's Māori or if it's just New Zealanders in general. We seem to love the the perceived um, groups that are kind of underground. Like before, we heard about 1814. They were playing at um, you know gigs. You heard yeah, about true that. Um, the House of Shem. They really they've really enshrined a new flavour of music, and it's it's kind of the stable now of reggae. Like there's lots of groups who are making that sort of sound, which is why I like 1814, because while they bring that rural dimension of being sort of underground, they also bring a new sound, and that's, that's it. I mean, that's what I enjoy about this music, is the fact that they're not afraid to jump out of the norm and experiment with their own sound, I just want them to do more of it. Um, by the next album, they're going to be the next big thing in Kiwi music. I um, put the album onto my iPod and 
It's a really easy listen because most of the tracks on there average between 2.50 to 3 minutes 40. So I think I was on a 40-minute bus ride and I listened to the entire album. What about you? I, I could listen to it from beginning to, to end. But What stands out for me also is a performance by the lead singer. He's got this amazing deep voice and it just complements the sound um, wonderfully, like especially in that first track with the techno sound Morning and then, Star. of course, Insomnia, which is the, the track which has a blend, blend of Indian sound as well. So it's like Māori wood meets Bollywood. Nice. <laughs> and um, yeah. he really could pass for being one of those big Bollywood singers. Yeah. He's got a, a gorgeous voice and, um, I mean, I can just see a big future for him. I thought Stan Walker. I kind of thought Stan Walker because he's got this, you know, and if you listen to Stan, he's always belting out those big notes. Any comparisons for you? I, I did think he, he sounded a lot like Michael Franti. Different pitch of voice, but um, definitely the same sort of sophistication. And they both come from the reggae background, and they both blend in different sounds with reggae. So I think, um, you know, I think Spearhead is sort of a, a good complementary sound that, that goes with their music too. Hey, hey, yeah. la, la, la. This is Justin Murray, we're reviewing 1814, the album Jar Ridem, talking to Mire Takoko. Mire, in terms of political statements, we have a lot of artists out there who, um, you know, in terms of their lyrics, they're um, either, you know, mentioning things about the state of Mardian politics or injustices. Do you get any of that with this album 1814? No, not really. Although they do um, have a Te Reo Māori track at the end of the of the um, album, um, which, which is good. But um, yeah, I, I suppose it was sort of surprising that here you have this group from Kirikiri, You know, we were talking about um, Waitangi just up the road. So I was surprised that they weren't um, singing about the the local history which is something that all the northern groups tend to do, which is kind of cool because I suppose that makes them different. You know, they were singing about the Bible and, and the history of David and that's very political in and of itself and, the, and that's also, you know, a very Jarastai Faro thing to do. So so in, in describing um, 1814, um, Patu um, Colbert describes the sound as upbeat, funky, R&B, roots, reggae, which I pre- pretty much sums it up. <laughs> it does, it does. Is this album only for reggae fans? No, that is nothing. Because they've blended in other sounds, um, it's definitely a commercial, um, commercially focused album, I think. Um, and that's they've got the market right. They just need, to, as I said before, to, to work on their sound, have the thre- a freedom to do that. And, I mean, it would be so great if they had some philanthropist or, you know, New Zealand music get behind them and support their development because I think this band could be big. They've got a beautiful, unique sound. They just need the time and freedom to work on it. Kei tuatu ki tērā. Kia ora, Mere. Kia ora. Ngāti Pirou, Mere Tākoko, reviewing 1814 and their debut album, Ja Ridem.
Kauwe Wariware Iwi Ma next weekend. Make your way to Papitia Marae in Wellington for Pao Pao Pao. The Māori music gig celebrating, well, of course, Māori music. The lineup is chocker of some of the best contemporary kaiwaiata around. There's Lisa Tomlins, Macy Rika, Ria Hall, formerly of Hope Road, Taonga Puro, musician Horo Mona Horo. And there's a bit of a reunion with Kaiwaiata, Kimowiniata, Tony Huata, Brannigan Carr, and Minna Ripia. For more information about Pao Pao Pao, you can head to our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. Waka Ama has hit Māori communities everywhere and despite age, gender and fitness level, Māori are taking to the sport with a vengeance. Gisborne-based Horauta Kaihui Waka Club is one of the more famed ones and, according to one of its members, Gordon Aston, follows in the traditions of our seafaring, navigating ancestors. So, Gordon, why is it that you think Māori have taken to the sport with great gusto? Oh, it's in our blood, it's our natural It's natural for us. We came here on a waka. Well, compared to these boats, we came here on a piece of wood. Mm-hmm. Compared to these flash boats, our tupuna got here on a couple of logs that fell over. So how much is a craft like this worth? Uh, the latest one we got through insurance was uh, about $13,000. Oh, that's not that much. Um, that's a six-man mahi-mahi, which is a flash racing boat. Yeah. These ones here... Um, I think as far as insurance purposes, they're probably zeroed now. But uh, the insurance company will replace them if we repair them and um, those sorts of things. So Horota is the name of the club? Horota Wakahui, yeah, is the name of this club. Um, like I said, they're the biggest, individually the biggest yeah, club, club in this. this club is famous, eh? This club is famous for kids who win medals, mm. both at the Nationals and at the Worlds. Yeah, really famous. Yeah, There's one, yeah, there's the name... Our most famous product is Hinerupe Maidians, which is a J16 girls, J19 girls. They've consistently won titles both here in New Zealand and Australia and the world, uh, at World Regattas as well. So what's it like in terms of uh, getting money together for people to jump into the sport? Um, it's, uh, it's I, I thought it was an inexpensive sport, but depending on how... how um, committed you become to the sport it can be quite expensive uh, but what we do here is we try to subsidise the young ones um, so the club has uh, some quite good um, fundraising activities that we engage in um, which produces uh, quite a reasonable amount of money that we then use to subsidise young, young, the young crews to um, take them to Karapiro and anywhere else that they need to go one. You go to one. Hoepa, go into two. Hoepa. Then jump, jump, come, come into three. So that's into three. And just make sure you have a paddle on the same side like we've been doing out on the water. On the inside, we'll start on the inside first. And um, remember the paddle. Just remember those um, those grey marks on the... These marks here. That's your reach point. OK? Yeah. You want your blade entering, you want the tip of your blade entering there, right right there, ready to go in there, okay? So upoko. Yeah, upoko. Hoi. 
In time with Sam, don't hit the ground. Get in time, jar own. Now you use Wakama as part of your mahi as a lay advocate for youth. Yeah, uh, I do, and um, well, I think it's it's a, it's a great sport, really, for our young guys in particular. Uh, just getting back to that waka, waka tradition that we have in our blood and just teaching them some things that um, arming them with some waka discipline that they can actually take away and, uh, and put into other elements. And life. Of, yeah. So it's just, yeah, just... Um, and the young crew that I've put together um, this year has basically come out of some of the work that a colleague and I have been doing with young people. He took some to rugby. Uh, I took some. I'm taking some to Wakama. We also have a, you saw a witness or witnessed a small part of a haka this morning. Um, at some stage in the future too, we'd like to add an element of kapahaka as well. Um, but getting the experts in those fields to come on board and, and work with our young people, um, just to help them with, just to re-identify with their own culture. And these boys that I've got are probably easy cases compared to what's out there. These boys actually want to identify with their world. Concentrate on lifting that blade out at your hip. So nobody's lifting at the moment. So start lifting. Yeah. Oop. One more over. Oop. Sam, you speed up for a second there. Just try and keep your 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 pace consistent. One extra, one extra. Young men here, are they all...? They're all part of a, a peer group. And so it's take the whole group or none at all um, because they're, um, they're quite linked to each other um, and other elements of their life. Four wanting to get into the army. <laughs> one wants to go into farming and the other one is the, our, our youngest fella, also the biggest boy amongst them. Um, he's still in his year 12 at high school, but... Oh, look at them, they're getting all keen. Yeah, no, well, Swinging today we're just going to run. Today uh, I said to them that we we're not going to go into the water today and we're a bit short of paddlers anyway. But I wanted to just take them through some technical things just to correct some of the paddling things they're doing. Everybody up, shift back one. Everybody up, shift back one. Just follow me. So, how many strokes do you do per side? Uh, varies depending on what type of race you're doing. And would it depend? Would it vary depending on what kind of water you're in? Uh, the, the type of stroke you're doing and the type of water would uh, determine what sort of stroke you're using. Right? Yeah. So when we're out here like this, so we're forward a bit. Okay. We're right forward, and we're hoi, pull through, lift, lift this arm, this arm goes boom. Okay. Goes up, lift, out, bang. Out, up, bang. Okay. You know what, Gordon? You can tell um, people who do ama, they're real buff. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, well, I don't know about that, but these yep. fellas here like taking their shit. <laughs> they like taking their shit. Off. When when we were down river the other night, uh, because this river here is the waterway for everybody, so we've got the the rowing club is down there, further down river. Uh, so at got the moment the we're standing club. in the Gisborne Township yeah. at the place called the Marina. Yeah, and this is the Tūranganui Ark. The river is Tūranganui. That heads that up one to the Moana. Yeah, this one here is Tarawira. 
further up uh, the Waimata River, because Tūranga Nui River only comes up to basically there and then it splits. This river goes up further and its name changes all the way up for the different areas. It goes through, but further up we have the yacht, uh, we have the rowing club, we have the kayak club, and we have three other wakaama clubs. Traffic. So on any given day, um, especially when it's fine and during the summer, you've got boats going all over the place up here. And of late, we've had the pesky dolphin by the name of, of Moko uh, has been visiting here, and he's been Moko's up river. Moko's got his own newspaper column. Yeah, and he's been up here. Moko watch. <laughs> he's been up here playing as well. So. Um, and he's not fussy, he'll play with anybody who's willing to play with him or give him some toys to play with. So, it's, uh, so yeah, no, there can be a lot of traffic on here at times. But originally in the old days, just where the, where the, where the crossing, well, sorry, can't see it, but over there where the main bridge is, where the harbour is, was probably for the people of Ngāti Onone, that was their main harbour over there, and then Marae was right down there. And uh, it now has a harbour basin and a fishing club. Um, never mind. Uh, but this place was always laden with boats. Somebody locally said that they should get the boats out of here because it creates an eyesore. And uh, really, oh, when the other boats. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> then a lot of the holiday makers started to appreciate the, the sight of the boats. So we, we get quite a few inquiries during holidays uh, for somebody to take them out for a bit of a paddle, get them a feel. Um, we do a whole lot of stuff. Yesterday, they had the primary schools down because we've got the primary intermediates coming up in a couple of weeks and so two of these boats will be lashed together and they'll form a 12 man there'll be 12 kids in each of them and they'll race up and down this river wow yeah. and we well, usually have about see. six schools participate in that each day and they try and run it through the week to to get it all polished up yeah so yeah no it's quite an impressive sight you know, I can see um, the benefit it would have this physically and also mentally if you were paddling up the river and you yeah. said that it changes names as yeah. you move up there, you'd yeah. be able to tell them what the names are and yep. so they're able to learn about that part of yeah. their yeah. whakapapa in a way, yeah. eh? Well, was, take these three boys for instance. Um, I think Sam, they're all Ngātipurau boys, mm. one way or the other. Um, that information would probably be useful for them when they're ready. You can do the same when we paddle. We paddle out at sea too. That's the lucky thing we have here. Yeah, um, you can so go we can go freshwater and seawater. At, at the moment, a lot of our emphasis has been on uh, sharing traditional information about our moana and what's, uh, what's out there, some of the significant names, the channels, the bays. Uh, not the names they're known by now, but what our tūpuna knew them as or what they were known as uh, when our people started to arrive here. But, yeah, and uh, it's been interesting. The primary schools have picked up. We've got a, we've got a Pākehā principal in our club, passionate about Wakaama, passionate about traditional history, and he's Canadian. <laughs> and he wants all his kids at his particular school, uh, every race, to learn about the local traditional history associated to the waterways out in front of his school. And so we've had kids from his school up and down the river, and uh, oh, sorry, uh, at, at sea, and they've been talked to, talked through some of that history by some of the Komatu. They just practice that. So, bang out, bang out, right up, bang, up, bang. You feel that in your 
So you're lifting with your right shoulder, you should be feeling that. Hup! Hands are out there. Hup! Bang! Hup! Hup! Bang! You'll get it. It's just a bit of homework to take away. What is up? Gisborne-based Horauta Kaihoi Waka Club, Mariah was with Gordon Aston, Jarome Turanga, Sam Brown and Joseph Marino. Ka rerua te wā kamatu tēnei wahanga a te ahikā, a neira a two-day reedy nō Ngāti Porau with this week's Whakatauki. Ko ātahaere, muri tata kino. To start early is leisurely, but to race against time is desperate. Well, to me that means you should uh, take care and uh, do things carefully and slowly if you need to, uh, because if you don't and you rush things, uh, they could end, you could make mistakes and it could end badly. Only two weeks to go, folks, until Mariah presents Māori and the Justice System. Lock in, Whakatefatefa, 30th of May. Next week, as promised, Hedia Hammond reviews a book that looks at the 1881 Parihaka invasion. E te iwi, mena he pātai, he pānui rānei a koutou, tēnā whakapā mai ki tā mātou wāhi ipurangi, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahikā. If you've got ideas for stories or feedback, please let us know at our webpage. And now you can find updates about the programme on the Te Ahikā Facebook page. You'll find our link once again at our webpage. Nā reire te iwi, kua kapi, tēnei hōtaka a te ahi kā. Hoki mai anō hei tērā tū wiki, mauri ora tātou katoa.